Tell you what, Jason's been so nice and uh, telling everybody uh, he's got me nervous. I feel like there's some expectations here, but um, you know, I worked for ten years in Panama City, and I had we had several different youth ministers there, and we only worked together. What did we actually work together? Six months, and I feel like I worked with Jason longer than anybody uh, because we are so uh, have so much in common. And I love. Bethany so much. In fact, one of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans. And Bethany was always smiling, and there's a, a character in that movie who's the quarterback that moves in from California, and uh, some of the players on the team like to call him Sunshine. And so, just so you know, next time you see her, this is actually my name for her, so I'll let you do that, but the next time you see her, say, look at Bethany and say, Sunshine, Sunshine. Okay, that's, that's what I say. I saw it just the other day, and that's the first thing I... Because she's sunshine. She's just like that. And I'm, it's a blessing uh, to be here. And uh, what a great worship. What a great spirit. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking moving from uh, the beach in Panama City to uh, West Tennessee, not even the mountains, but to the part of Tennessee that's more like Oklahoma. Not to put Oklahoma down or anything, but uh, we're known for tornadoes and things like that where I live. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I've... This is the first time I've preached in blue jeans. I kept asking him, you sure it's okay? You sure it's okay? I left, Cal- I left Florida for a more formal setting. My dad's rolling over in his grave right now because I'm wearing blue jeans, but at least I kept my shirt tail in, so <laughs> everything should fit with that. Oh, on January 21st, <clears throat> 2007, not long after, well, right when I first got to Jackson, I was reading through the Bible, and uh, the Lord laid a heavy burden on my heart that has been on my heart uh, for quite some time, for that whole time, eight, said eight years. It was such a great burden, I knew after I read this passage that this was something God wanted me to do with my life, but I didn't know how, I didn't know when. So it went on my day timer, or whatever you call it, my daily schedule, and for 365 days a year, for the last eight years, it said, pray for your sons and daughters, but I've had no idea other than the fact that I know that it's something that God wants me to do and something that God wants me to share, and there's some ministry or something that's going to come out of that. And right now, I'm in a transition period. I don't know if I'm going to stay in Jackson or what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to stay in a traditional uh, pulpit ministry. Uh, there's a lot of doors God's opened in the community to bring churches together of all kinds and pray, uh, offer up prayer support for, uh, for the faith-based organizations and for the city and for the county. And God's working a revival out in Jackson that's pretty powerful. It's an exciting time to try to bring everybody together, not to change what we do on Sunday mornings, but to bring people together in prayer and bring our resources together to make a difference in the community and hopefully be a light and example to other communities to do that. Because quite frankly, uh, there's a lot of things that Cornerstone can do. But Cornerstone, uh, along with the other Christians in this community, can do just about anything. And that's what Jesus prayed about, and I feel a great burden for that. And God has opened many, many doors and shut many doors. Uh, I I appreciate your prayers because I really don't know But I know that the message I want to share with you today has something to do with it. And I've got so much stuff. Jason told me, he told me not to pay attention to the clock. That's trouble for you guys. I haven't preached in a while, so I've got a lot of words to say. Uh, So, uh, you know, those could be a bad combination. But 
I've got my timer on for myself, so it's okay. I'm aware of it. It I won't be too bad. I won't be too hard on you. But I I really want to be able to focus some things and hopefully bless you and challenge you today. Uh, The message came from uh, 2 Kings. If you've got your Bibles, turn in the Old Testament to 2 Kings. And uh, it's the story of King Hezekiah. It's actually encompasses three chapters in 2 Kings, also some chapters in 2 Chronicles and some chapters in the book of Isaiah. But what I want to focus on is this, and I'm going to not look at the whole story because it's three whole chapters, but I want to look at some highlights of it, and then I want to, 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 to offer a challenge based on what God convicted me of as I looked at this passage. Now, Hezekiah was a good king, and he was known for being a good king. In fact, the Bible says that there was no king like him before or after that was so good and did what was right in God's eyes. But at the same time, a man who is considered by God to be someone that did right in God's eyes is still a man, and therefore he's imperfect, and he makes mistakes, and Hezekiah made some mistakes at the end of his life. But Hezekiah was a a great king, and he lived... He had one nemesis above everybody else, and it was King Sennacherib, and he was the king of Assyria. And he was one of those kings, like we read about in Bible days, that wanted to conquer the whole earth. And he had been on a rampage, and he had been conquering all kinds of cities and all kinds of places, and he was coming to Jerusalem, and his desire now was to take Jerusalem, and he laid it siege. And what he would do before he would go into a city, and by the way, there are some people that question whether or not... In, uh, the Assyrian Empire really existed, and, and they recently have uncovered the city of Nineveh and have found more evidence of Assyria than anybody. King Sennacherib, some things, everything backs up what the Bible says. That's what I love about it. I mean, we already know that, but every time archaeologists find something, it just blows your mind. It says exactly what the Bible says. Sennacherib was a trash, trash talker. He liked to go in and conquer people, and this came from National Geographic, so I know it's accurate, okay? So, so this is what they uncovered this is something that Sennacherib have said about this situation. These are his words. He's such a vain, arrogant leader. He said, 46 of Hezekiah's strong-walled towns, he spoke of himself in the third person, and innumerable smaller villages besieged and conquered. As for Hezekiah, the king of Judah, the awful splendor of my lordship overwhelmed him. He went on to say, he was a prisoner in Jerusalem, His royal residence was like a bird in a cage. And this is a situation, that's historically what they've uncovered that that Sennacherib had to say about Hezekiah among his many conquests. But now the city's laid siege. But he would always be nice and he would go into the city and he would have eunuch or uh, his cupbearer and some messengers to go in, give them an opportunity to go ahead and lay down their arms and surrender and submit to his lordship and Let their armies follow him and go behind him. So they're coming up to the walls of Jerusalem, trash-talking, laying out this message from Sennacherib. The king asked them not to speak in the language of the people, and of course then they started speaking in the language of people because they're there. It's kind of like, not that I ever watched it, but kind of like the movie 300 when they come to give the message to King Leonidas, and um, and they're trying to be all tough. and, and, um, And so they give this message to... Hezekiah are to the people. So they bring the message to Hezekiah. And I'm just going to read a highlight of it, the end of it. The end of the message is this. When they bring it to him, it says, Sennacherib speaking, of who of all the gods has been able to save his land from me? So what makes you think that your God 
can save Jerusalem from me. Now Hezekiah, scared, he knew what had happened. He knew what already happened in the kingdom of Judah. But Hezekiah did the only thing he knew to do. He took the message, and it says that he spread it out at the altar of the Lord. And then he went to the Lord, and he said in verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 19, he says, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline, that, that literally means, he's saying, bend down your ear, Lord. Incline your ears, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words Sennacherib has sent me to mock the living God, O Lord our God. Now, you want some strong leadership? That's what a strong leader is going to do. He's like, he didn't have enough horses and chariots to take on this king. But he had a God who was greater than everything. So he just said, God, right here, he's mocking you, God. He's making fun of you, God. He's, he's laying this out. Isaiah's account has a different thing. He starts out his prayer according to Isaiah 37 with, O Lord of hosts, which means the God of the armies. And that's what he needed right now, is he needed the God that had the chariots and horses of fire. He's saying, O Lord of hosts, because this is a battle, this is a war, and it's not just a physical war, it's a spiritual war. Just a few chapters earlier, when Elisha was in Dothan, not Dothan, Alabama, but he was in Dothan, and he was surrounded by all of these, uh, the great army that his servant looked out, and he saw the army around them, and, and Elisha just said, Lord, open his eyes. And he opened his eyes, and he saw chariots and horses of fire all around them, because that's the reality of what's going on. That's the reality that God's army, that there's this spiritual battle going on, and this is what Hezekiah's doing. He's, he's praying for these chariots and horses of fire, or whatever it is, that the Lord of hosts would come and incline his ears and open his eyes and see and hear what Sennacherib was saying. And then he closes his prayer with this, and this is what you need to say at the end of a prayer. You want God to do something mighty, don't ask him to do it for you. But he does love you, so loved you that he gave his only begotten son for you. But here's what you do. He says, now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, or God. Now, I'm praying that prayer a lot recently. Because what this world needs to know right now is that God alone is God. We, we're, we're, in a biblical, we're in a time of biblical proportions. I don't know if you realize that. We're in a time, kind of like what we read about in the Bible. And we need to pray this prayer because this is a prayer God will answer. Because he did send his son. He does want the whole world to know his son. And the best way for that to happen is God, show yourself as God. We need you to step in and show this world, show our nation, show everyone around that you're God. So God responds. God's response is awesome. Won't read all of it, just some highlights. 2 Kings 19, 22. God, this is the message for great King Sennacherib. Against whom have you raised your voice? Now there's some messenger reading this, by the way, so you can imagine he's probably shaking his knees going before the king reading this. He says, Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel? 2 Kings 19, 27 and 28, he says, But I know where you stay, talking to King Sennacherib, and when you come and when you go and how you rage against me, because you rage against me and your insolence 
has reached my ears. I'm the one that's on high, and your insolence has reached my ears. And I'm going to put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I'll make you return by the way that you came. A lot of athletes in here, I think. No one trash talks like God. He always backs it up. He's not like the coach at Arkansas. He always backs up. I I thought there might be some sports football fans here. He always backs up what he says. You know why? Because that's what God's about. He wants His glory to fill the earth. He wants people to know His glory. It's not because He's arrogant. It's because His glory is good. It's because this world needs to see that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is grace. Jesus Christ needs to be lifted up. It's because of that. And that's what we want to happen. Not our glory, but His glory. For His glory to be displayed. Now here's the beauty of it. 2 Kings 19, God does exactly what He's going to say. Verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord, this is singular, by the way, the angel of the Lord, this is how powerful God is. He just took one. He didn't need his hosts. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000, that's a city of Chattanooga, men in the Assyrian camp, When the people got up, the next morning there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. (laughs) He returned to Nineveh, and he stayed there. Now this is just the first part, building the case here. You turn over to the next chapter in Hezekiah 20. Hezekiah is told that he's about to die and that he needs to set his house in order. This is past all this. And Hezekiah cries out to God, And says, God, I've been a faithful servant. And God hears him. And God extends his life 15 years. Now, wouldn't that be incredible? To have the experience that Hezekiah had. To to know that God hears your voice. And to know that God works miracles. That he's defeated this Assyrian army. That he extends your life 15 years. And I'm wondering about, for, for some of us, I don't know if you've ever prayed and felt like, is God listening? Do you hear me? Do you care about what's going on in my life? Here, here Hezekiah has the advantage of God doing these powerful, miraculous things. And I want to tell you something. If you feel like God's not hearing you, He's definitely not hearing you if you're not continuing to pray. Don't quit, ever. Keep on praying. Now, 2 Kings 20, something happens. Verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan. If you wonder where Lord of the Rings got their names, they got them from uh, kings. Uh, King of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So here, Hezekiah, there seems to be this change that takes place. Here he's praying for his people. He's praying for God to show himself mighty. Then a few years later, he prays, God, I don't want to die even though all of us die. Extend my life, and God extends his life. But during those 15 years, he didn't end well. He's a king that said no one did what Hezekiah did before or after, but he did not end well. He gets full of pride in the very blessings that God has given him. God destroyed these armies before him. He starts to... 
he starts to take a little pride in them. So when the Babylonian people come, he starts showing them all of these things. Here's a great opportunity for this up-and-coming kingdom called Babylon to see that God is mighty for him to say, this is what God's given us. Don't mess with us because we have the God of hosts who is our God. No, that's not what he did. He showed them everything like it was his own, including his own daughters and sons. And he's feeling kind of good because Judah's, you know, what's Judah? Well, it's pretty mighty because it's got God, but as far as numbers go, you know what Sennacherib did, and here comes this up-and-coming Babylon, and they're giving attention to him, and he feels pretty good about it. This is pretty cool. Let me just show them. And the Scripture literally says he was pleased. He was grinning from ear to ear at the opportunity to brag about what he had in his kingdom. So Isaiah comes along. Isaiah had a way of messing up people's grins, you know. So he comes in, and Isaiah the prophet, verse 14, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house All that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What's Hezekiah's response? Then Hezekiah says, If God says it, it must be good. But he was thinking to himself, It won't happen during my lifetime. I'll enjoy peace and security as long as I live. And that's the verse that has changed my life and rocked my world upside down and given me a purpose in life. I'm like, are you kidding me? Hezekiah, this man, this king, who when this great army was coming against him, did not fear, did not hesitate, well, he might have feared, laid down the request, spread it out before the altar of God, cried out to God, you can just see him laying on his face saying, God, you hear this, they're mocking you, God, show yourself mighty. Hezekiah, the same guy, when God told him, you're going to die, just like everybody's going to die, we're all going to die sometime, and I said, oh God, please give me 15 more years, and God loved him so much, he gave him 15 more years. Now God tells him, here's what's going to happen, because of your pride, because of what you did, your sons and daughters, your sons are going to be taken away as eunuchs and more than likely your daughters as prostitutes to these people. This is what's going to happen. Your own sons are going to be eunuchs in this court. This is what's going to happen. And Hezekiah says, well, at least it won't happen in my lifetime. This great interceder, and I don't know about you, and some of you here don't have kids yet, but I'm telling you when you do have kids, and even more so when you have grandkids, I cannot fathom this. This man who didn't hesitate to lay down and lay down the request. I mean, you say, God, have mercy on me. Father, please, I've lived a good life. I'm the one that sinned. Don't make my children pay for my sin. Lord, have mercy, please. This same one who God gave him 15 more years. God slaughtered 185,000 people because of his prayer request. Don't tell me that God would not have said, okay, you're going to, okay, I hear your prayer, Hezekiah. It won't be your sons and daughters. They're going to be saved. He says it won't happen in my lifetime to hell with my sons and daughters. He didn't say that, but yeah, he did. 
And that is the sin. That's what I was convicted of. That is the sin of the older generations throughout time. How much time have we spent? Older generation, no matter what you are, even if you're 19, you say it about the 10-year-olds. I mean, everybody says, well, you know, when I was young, Everybody says, well, you know, this generation is so rebellious, they don't, have, you know, they don't have any respect, they don't understand anything. It's like we get this pleasure out of complaining about the younger generations, but how much time do we spend on their face crying out to God for the younger generation? It's like we're content, and it's like we want to see them fail so we can say, okay, told you so. Well, that's not me. I want my children to experience revival and things that I can't even fathom. And I want my grandchildren to have it even better. And let me tell you what that means. That doesn't mean I want them to be happy. That's not my goal for my children. I want them to experience revival. I want them to experience harvest. I want them to experience the power of God in their lives. And what does my life mean? And this goes no matter what age you are. What has my life meant if I've not left a mark for the next generation? You know, sometimes, I've been in a lot of churches, and there's nothing more attractive than an older person full of the Spirit of God and full of humility that you've seen how God has seasoned them and worked in their lives. I think every young person around, that's what I want to age like. So you're, they're drawn to someone like that, like that. But they're far more people, I'm afraid, in the places I've been that spend time saying, complaining about the songs, complaining about the younger generation, more selfish, more full of themselves than they were when they were children. So what matters is that we do what we do to the glory of God. When you get older, we shouldn't be demanding more. We should be serving more. We should be more humble than we've ever been because anything that you know, the older you get, the more you realize you don't know. And how freeing is that? And that makes you depend on God more. But some people don't age that way. Some people age in a way that they demand and think, I paid my dues, so now, I was in a church service last week, um, not in Jackson, I don't even remember where it was, but it was a church service and they were singing, Whate'er Be Tied. And I heard that line four or five times. I was looking around at the teenagers and the college students, I'm like, shoot, I'm 52 and I don't have a clue what that means. <laughs> Somebody's happy because they've sung that song all their lives, but it's not communicating. I don't want to make this about that. But the point is, when I get to the end of my life, the best illustration I know is this is a sprint. This, I, and some people say it's a marathon, but in a way it's a sprint. I mean, we've got God, so we don't ever hurt. I mean, we're not hurting. In a, it's a relay. That's the better illustration. And I want to end my life in a full sprint, handing the baton to my children. That means they start where I finish. I'm not feeling threatened because my children have it better than me or because God does more in their lives and more through them than me. See, there's a competition among parents and their children sometimes. I want it, I want all, I mean, I want to experience no, my job is to be running in full sprint and hand the baton to my children running in full sprint. And by the time they get to the end of their life, man, I'm so burnt out in the dust. I mean, I'm so far in the dust, nobody even... But they do know this. The legacy was left, that we're in a sprint, 
and my daddy and my granddaddy left the baton and the sprint and gave it to me, and it wouldn't, if it wasn't, you know, I might get the benefit of they left the legacy. They left the example. So I was convicted about this. It's like the word just came to my mind. Pray for your sons and daughters. Pray for your sons and daughters. Pray for your sons and daughters. Because when it's all said and done, folks, that's the greatest work we have. I want to share with you a story about my son. I'm like a lot of dads. I love sports. I loved last night. Yesterday was a good day for me. It's not a lot of days that all my football teams win, but they did yesterday, and that's, I just want to just rejoice. But uh, my son was a really good athlete. We were told that, you know, as a parent, you treasure that. You think it already, but when somebody tells you that, that's a pro athlete themselves, or you really treasure that. So we put him into travel ball, baseball, and we, we did that. And it's hard for a preacher to do that kind of stuff. I missed a lot of games on Sunday. I made a lot of choices to let him go ahead and go to some of these things that were going on, on Sunday. And he played on World Series champion. Then when he got into his freshman year, he was – one of the top 100 prospects, or one of the top 100 freshmen in the country. But he decided to grow four inches. So he got hip flexors, and speed was what he was known for. All of a sudden, he's running like an old man, and he didn't get to play one inning his freshman year in high school. Then he decided his sophomore year to grow four more inches. So the same thing happens. He has hip flexors. He's not able to play his whole sophomore. Needless to say, he's not on any list anymore. Then we moved to Tennessee. And now he's 6'4", you know, he's a big old boy. He's got his speed back, and man, he's fast. He's, you know, he's a sprinter. We got there, he's mad. He's mad at the world. I never let him play football before, and I made him play football. And he was a natural as a wide receiver. And actually, that took over as maybe the dominant sport because he, for some reason, never got hurt in football, but he could get hurt all the time in baseball. And so he played, and it was magical. They won the state championship. His first year we moved there, he got two state championship rings. It was awesome. When he got the baseball, it's still his first love. He played most of the season. He was tearing it up his junior year. In one game, he did the hat trick, struck out three times, got mad, came in the dugout. It wasn't even a hard hit. He just did that, breaks his hand, misses the rest of the season. does get to play in state, championship, uh, state tournament games. He gets to play again, but misses most of the season. Does great in baseball, the football the next year, gets a scholarship um, to Lambeth University. I don't know if you watched any of the ball game last night. There was a commercial about Hugh Freeze. He'll go down in history, well, not in history because nobody cares about it, but he was the first person Hugh Freeze, who's the coach at Ole Miss, which wasn't that beautiful for them to beat. Anyway, I'm sorry, beat Alabama. But uh, he, uh, the first recruit that he ever had as a college coach, and uh, Isaac was going to Lambeth, but he still wanted to play baseball. Senior year, no pressure. I'm going to get to go to college and play football, but I really want to play baseball. So he breaks his ankle, has this fluke accident where he's allergic to the nickel they put in his ankle, and he can't play. They never could figure it out. They figured it out the week before the state championship. He missed the entire season. They figure out he's allergic. His wound wouldn't heal. His ankle healed a long time, and he misses the whole year. Well, then he goes in as a medical uh, medical. Um, Red shirt, he gets addicted to painkillers. Painkillers lead him to cocaine. 
We don't really realize it because that for, we, we're seeing he's working at Jason's Deli, and one day my wife and I are in Jason's Deli, and our 220-pound son is about 160, and his eyes are like poking out of his skeleton face. And my wife looked at me and said, that's not our son. So we take him out of school. We bring him home. He gets his life together. He gets a job working with an electrician. He's a natural at that kind of stuff. I can't do anything like that. And works his way up real quickly in a position, starts putting some weight on, decides I'm going to walk on at Freed Hardeman and play baseball. He walks on, he makes the team. I mean, he hadn't played baseball in three years. He makes the team. He's going to bat fourth, clean up, and play center field in their first fall game two weeks after school starts, two months after, or a month after school starts. He goes out with some friends through a fluke, gets drug tested. One weekend he's doing cocaine. He gets kicked out of school. He goes to live with my wife. I mean, my mom and my wife. And <laughs> my mom, I always have a blooper of some sort. My mom in Middle Tennessee to help her out. She's elderly. He decides to walk on at Motlow State, a junior college. Makes the team. Freed Hardman won't release his transcripts. He decides I, he's so empty. He's like, I'm going to go try out for the Reds and the Royals. And he does really good in the tryouts. The only problem is they don't really take anybody that tries out. They just kind of throw you a bone. All this time that's going on, he's off and on, he's off and on. The only thing that we're doing, and I did a lot of things wrong, was one thing, pressing him in sports. But I never quit praying for him. I never quit praying for him. Today he's 26, he works in a factory, and he's moved to as high as he can move without his education, but they like him so much they're paying for his education. He's back to his regular weight, he's this bodybuilding freak, you know, because he's got that thing going, and he, and I went in the other day, uh, he was at my house, and I couldn't find him, I went in the shop, and I found him on his face praying to God. And I thought, thanks, God, for the illustration for the church I'm going to this week. No, I thought, this is you, God. You're showing out. I have done almost everything wrong. I'm just like those other dads that everything's about getting my daughter to play soccer, by the way. She's going to play college soccer, and I've done the same. I've kind of done the same with her. And here she is, a senior. She's broken all kinds of records, and she had a concussion. She's missed most of the season. Good thing she's committed somewhere. But one thing that's happened when you see your daughter laying lifeless on the field for five minutes and you don't know it's a concussion, I'm like, God, I, hit, I repeat it again. But I never quit praying for her. And her choice has been to go to a school, to not go to the Division I school she could go to, but to go to Harding, which is Division II, because she wants to go on mission trips and she wants to study abroad and she wants to have a full experience. And here I am, a preacher, wanting her to say she was going to Tennessee, you know. And it's like, but God's answering my prayers in spite of me. My whole point is this. The best thing you can do to leave a legacy for the next generation is to pray. Commit to pray for your sons and daughters. Pray for your sons and daughters. Pray for your sons and daughters. Pray for yourself. Pray for yourself that God will, God will show himself in your life in spite of you. Because it's always going to be in spite of us. No matter who we are, it's always in spite of us. Because we're not perfect. God is faithful. God is faithful and God will do great things. And the most important, when it's all said and done, listen, 
what would happen, and I, talked, I have the opportunity to talk to a lot of fathers that, man, their whole life is committed to their kid, whatever sport it is, playing whatever the sport is. And I say, okay, say he becomes Chipper Jones. He's 40. He's going to have most of his life ahead. What's he going to do with his life? The only thing good about sports is if you do it to the glory of God and use it for a platform to proclaim his glory. If you don't do that, you're not really getting anything out of it. What are you going to do with your life? It's a relay. And we can, I, I will not accept no for an answer. I am going to get on my face before God and I'm going to cry out to the God who loves my children far more than I do that He would do great things in their lives because we are in a war. I think somebody said it today about the, the war that we're in. We are in a battle. We are in a war. There is a war going on for the souls of people, for our souls, for our children's souls, for your future children's souls. There is a war going on, not just for the nation, but for the world. And Satan is working extra hard. And I love your worship because I feel like worship is warfare. Good worship is where you declare war on the one and the gates of hell, the gates of hell are running. That's why I love Darlene Check. This, uh, before I go to bed at night, I listen. She's the one that wrote Shout the Lord, kind of started the whole Hillsong movement years ago. She has two songs that she's not as well known for, Victor's Crown and In Jesus' Name. And they're basically warfare songs. They're chants. You see her and Carrie Job in concert doing this thing, and they'll come. But then the, the song talks about how, Hallelujah, you have overcome, you have overcome. Jesus has overcome the world. And then she says, Every, the song goes, every high thing must come down. Every stronghold shall be broken. You wear the victor's crown. You overcome. You overcome. But then you get to the song in Jesus' name. She talks about how you're carrying our burdens, covering our shame. He has overcome. Yes, He has overcome. We will not be shaken. We will not be moved. Jesus, You are here. Then she gets to the bridge, and the bridge is always fighting words. God is fighting for us, pushing back the darkness, lighting up the kingdom. That cannot be shaken. It's not really a song. So In the name of Jesus, enemies defeated, and we will shout it out. We will shout it out. I will live. I will not die. The resurrection power of Christ is alive in me, and I am free in Jesus' name. God is fighting for us, pushing back the you put the headphones on and listen to that song before you go to bed at night, In Jesus' Name by Darlene Chick. When you wake up in the middle of the night, in the dark hours of the night, you will literally wake up in the bed, as I did this morning. God is fighting for us, playing in my head. You want to know some words that will give you some courage? You wake up in the middle of the night, and God is fighting for us, pushing back the darkness, lighting up the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what we need. And God wants to do it. God's not quit working miracles, people. Acts is not something that happened then and doesn't happen now. You read the book of Acts, you get to the end of the book of Acts, we don't even know what the situation is with Paul. You know why? Because it's continued. And the Cornerstone Church right here Thomasville, Georgia, is a part of the continuation of that. What God can do with the people in this room, well, he turned the world upside down with 12, so I reckon he can do the same here.
If we get this message out and we start going everywhere and we say, people, pray for your sons and daughters. Pray for yourselves. If you don't do anything else, you're going to mess up. That's what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to have shame. One of the beautiful things about this song, in Jesus' name, she talks about Jesus carrying our burdens, covering our shame. He has overcome. Yes, he has overcome. We will not be shaken. We will not be moved. Jesus, you're here. He carries our burdens. He covers our shame. Shame doesn't come from Jesus. Jesus dealt with our shame on the cross. And the resurrection secured, assured that we never have to live in shame again. It doesn't say we're not going to sin. It says our sins are covered. It says that the power to rise above, the power to overcome, well, overcoming has already been done. He has already overcome. All prayer does is connect us with the victory that's already there. This world needs to see Jesus. This world needs for Christians to get on their faces and not trash talk on Fox News, but get on their faces and talk to God so that God can show himself mighty in this world. To get on our, voice, our, heart, our, our, our faces and cry out to God with all of our hearts and to know that we have a God that doesn't sleep and doesn't slumber. And the good news is we can sleep and slumber because God doesn't. We can rest because God doesn't. And God can do something about it and we can't. But here's what we can do. We can cry out to God. Anybody can do that. And honestly, the more messed up you are, the better. Because the more utterly dependent you are on Him. And the more dependent you are on Him, the greater you see His glory and the greater you see of Him. I hadn't preached in a while. I could go on all day long. Let me give you a book. I was going to read some things from this book. Let me encourage you. Jesus continued. A pastor and a retired pastor put me onto this in Jackson. It's been a great thing for me to read during this time. It's basically about the, here's, here's, here's the, the, the subtitle, Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. It's not blasphemous. Jesus is the one that said that we'd do greater things than him. Because we have the Spirit. All of us have the Spirit of God. When Jesus was on earth, he was in Judea. We go more places in a day than Jesus went in his life, these people in this room. And we have the Holy Spirit of God that raised him from the dead inside of us. And the power in all of that is... And and I'll close with this idea. I have young preachers come up to me and ask me for advice. You think long and hard when somebody comes up and gives you, asks you for advice. And one of them is about praying <clears throat> and their walk with God. But the main advice I give them is simply this. First thing you need to know is God doesn't need you. Now that sounds... Hardcore. That's the interesting thing about this book is when I saw this chapter, it just kind of blew my mind because I thought, well, yes, the Holy Spirit's definitely trying to tell me something. But he was talking about how his despair drove him to the Scriptures. And he says when he got to the Scriptures, he realized, I can't, because there's a lot of people in the Christian world trying to guilt us into social justice. I'm not saying not to do that, but here's the difference. When the Holy Spirit, which he did in Acts, is the one leading it, 
it will change the world. And the Holy Spirit can do more in one moment than we can do with all of our plans and all of our service. If all it is is service, then Angelina Jolie is the most righteous person on earth. If all it is is service and the Rotary Club and all that, and there's nothing wrong with that, they got it covered. We don't just need service. We need the Holy Spirit to direct our steps and empower us. And so here I'm reading this. I'm like, God, you definitely give me some message here. And he says, this, he says, I felt all the weight. He felt all the weight and all the pressure of the world needing to be changed and people needing to hear the gospel. He said, he said, and I felt, he said, the more I found out, the more I, and he talked about it. He puts it, you know, he even, not that radical and crazy love are not good books, but I, I love the way he just kind of took this on. He says, I found that many, if not most, just, just see if this fits you, many, if not most, committed Christians feel the same way. They've been told to be radical, to be full of crazy love, followers of Jesus and not fans. And these are all true needed messages. And yet many of us, after a really zealous start, end up down a radical path, feeling paralyzed by the weight of it all. So we toggle between summers of feverish activity and winters of guilt and fatigue. And all that we've ended up with is just another form of legalism that's left us feeling more paralyzed, more hopeless, more useless than ever. Is that how God wants us to think about life? If so, where does this kind of thinking stop? If every person I see is headed either to heaven or to hell, then shouldn't I spend every minute of every day interrupting them to make sure they know how to get to God? Don't they all need to know right now, if it depends on me, shouldn't I interrupt them immediately? The burden of such a conviction crushed me. Ironically, however, the more I dealt on the need, the less dwelt on the need, the less I felt motivated to do it. The more paralyzed I felt, the more I realized this is impossible. I mean, who wants to try to empty the ocean with a thimble? I don't even have that much to offer. My despair drove me to the Scriptures and my despair eventually gave way to one of the most surprising insights I've ever had. One that has radically redefined how I see my service to God. This discovery turned drudgery and guilt into freedom and joy and perhaps ironically has led to more generous living on my part than any resolve to be radical ever did. Let me warn you. It's completely counterintuitive. Here it is. God doesn't need you. Never has. Never will. Or anything. Ever. It turns out that I had overestimated what I had to contribute. I didn't have more I needed to give. I had actually had nothing to give. Nothing that God needed to begin with. God's not looking for people to supply His needs. God's not short on money. He's not short on talent. He's not short on time. He's never commanded us to save the world for Him. He has called us to follow Him and have the privilege of Him saving the world through us. Let me tell you what. God said through the psalmist, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. The world's mine and all that's in it. Call on me in the day of trouble. I'll deliver you and you'll honor me. God doesn't come to us with his hat in hand needing our help to save the world. If he did, we'd take some of the glory for saving it. God insists he will share none of his glory with anyone. Besides him, there is no other. So he goes on and he says the first assignment, I think, Jason was talking about preaching this when he preached Acts. The first assignment he gave the apostles was to wait. They were the only ones with the gospel message. Nobody else knew the gospel message. The world was going to hell. There was no hope. We've got to get out of here. We've got to make some sermons. We've got to write some books. We've got to have some revivals. And he said, you go in this room and you wait. 
You wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And what happened next? The world was turned upside down. God did more in an hour than we can do with all of our long-range goals, all of our ministries, and all of our budgets. If I could do anything, I'd just say, let's just take our budgets and let's throw them in the fire and let's take our ministries and throw them in the fire. It's not very practical for the 21st century. Of course, Jason wouldn't get paid, I guess. But, uh, but here's the idea. Maybe that's not what we need to do, but this is what we need to do. Do what Jehoshaphat did and say, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And pray for your sons and daughters. The answer right now for this nation and this world is for God's people to pray. That is not, contrary to some of the popular books out there in the Christian world, that is not unproductive. There are books out there that say stop praying and do something. I want to say stop doing something and pray. Because something ain't going to do nothing. That's why you feel desperate. But when you pray, I don't know anybody that's a prayer warrior that God doesn't transform into a doer. But the difference is that what you do will have his approval, his stamp, and the power of the Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead behind it. And that will change the world. So, before I see another note that I want to say, who will commit to pray? Some of you are probably already do, and I can tell by your amens, this is just something that God's confirming. and Maybe for all of you, God's just confirming something you already know. But we need to be warriors. We need to cry out to God. We need to pray for God to make himself known in this world. And those of you that are soccer players, or those of you that play other sports, or those of you who are involved in other things, I mean, what God can do through you is powerful if you will be a person that does what you do for his glory and you give yourself to him. You may end up with an injury. You may end up with something else. It may be that the glory that he gives you, it may not be through you being an All-American and a superstar. It may be the way to deal with the adversity unlike anybody else deals with the adversity. I don't know. I'm not God. But here's what I know. He'll use you. He'll say, God, I'm yours. Use me however you want to use me. That's exactly what he's going to do. And he's going to bring glory to him and peace and joy to you because you are fulfilling the purpose you were created for, which is his purpose. I don't know how to close this. I told, I told uh, Jason that maybe, maybe if you feel led to, no pressure, but if you feel led to, maybe we take advantage of this and just come out and pray to God as we close out this morning. I'm so sorry I went so long, but you won't have to see me for a while, so you can just uh, be thankful you got Jason and he doesn't go so long. Um, was that a joke? He goes that long? Uh, I didn't know. Um, I don't normally go this long either. Um, I want to invite you. We don't sing a song. What do we do here? Sing a song. I want to invite you, if you feel led, to come up here and and let's just lay our hearts out to God if you feel committed to, to pray to God. I don't know of a better way to end a worship service than for people, his people to be on their knees crying out to him, dedicating themselves to him, committing to him, saying, God, I don't know what I want to do next. I don't know what we're supposed to do next, but God, I'm just laying it out for you. I want to be used by you. Lead me, God. Maybe some of you here haven't committed your life to Christ, and this is a great opportunity. You can talk to Jason or one of the elders or someone else. 
to be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you here have some other prayer concerns other than just this, that you need someone just to pray with you. And I'm, I can tell already this is a church that will do that with you. But uh, let's sing. Let's come before God. Let's just lay our hearts and our requests before God. Thank you for your attention, your patience with me. I appreciate it.